Welcome to the Urban Lab with Sam Chandon, the podcast on cities and the built environment, featuring leaders in industry, research, and policymaking. Welcome to the Urban Lab. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, Silverstein Chair at the Shack Institute of Real Estate. On today's program, a new model for the great American city. In the aftermath of the housing boom of the early and mid-2000s and the housing collapse that followed, the national zeitgeist turned firmly in favor of urbanism. But that experience-focused model is now under threat. As cities and states around the country weigh their plans for getting back to business, they are grappling with changes in attitudes that may transcend the practical challenge of social distancing on public transportation and in high-density office and apartment buildings. Americans won't abandon their cities by any means. Many can't afford to. But the balance of where we live, work, play, and shop may look very different going forward. With me to discuss how the balance might shift and how the pandemic is informing our thinking about public spaces and placemaking, I'm joined by Kirk Sykes, Managing Director at Accordia Partners. Accordia is currently spearheading a 5.9 million square foot development in Boston's Bayside. Kirk is former chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and a board member at the Real Estate Executive Council and the Cornell Baker Program in Real Estate. Kirk, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Big picture, do we ever go back to the office in the traditional sense? Um, my answer is, is yes. And I think uh, the fact is we do it, we just do it differently. And, um, you know, this is spearheaded by the fact that pandemics have happened four times a century for the last several centuries. Uh, we have recovered from them. We have continued to build our cities. In fact, we've become more urbanized over, you know, in this century than we had in the prior one, of course. And then uh, the second thought is that we have also experienced uh, traumatic experiences like 9-11 and uh, we pretty quickly got back in tall buildings and back on airplanes. So my thought is we do it, we do it differently. I mean, what are the key features of this pandemic as compared to any that might have come before is that you know, the technologies that have allowed many of us to continue working, being productive, are actually mature enough that deals are getting done, uh, businesses being transacted, we're creating value in the economy. How does that introduce a new element to the equation? No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, effectively, uh, we have begun to adapt and adopt a lot faster in recent years. And, uh, you know, effectively, tech is life and vice versa. So right now we work, we preside health, we deal with entertainment, we get happiness, and all that happens on your wrist or in your pocket. And so uh, I think we've become very comfortable um, sort of adapting with our technology and uh, learning to live through our technology. Uh, the other thoughts are that, uh, you know, we're in a world that has become increasingly global over the last few years, but in this pandemic, it's become increasingly local. We want to rely on everything that's at our fingertips and we want it to come to us immediately. Um, products, experiences, shopping, shipping, food, we expect it to show up instantaneously. So. Effectively, I think our risk-reward tolerance is down, that we don't want to take chances, but we want the immediacy that technology affords us. 
I understand your point about how central technology has been in this pandemic response for so many of us working from home, our ability to get food, our ability to work, but there are also extraordinary disparities in access to that technology. Uh, What does that mean for huge swaths of the population that don't have the hardware, don't have the technology, don't have the savvy, and who aren't working in professions uh, that lend themselves to remote working? Uh, It's a great question. I don't think we know yet. Uh, I think what we know is that not everybody can be part of the gig economy. I mean, effectively, there was a uh, knowledge gap and a skills gap that this is exacerbated. For those of us who have the technology to work from home and work in the tech sector or other sectors which are facilitated by remote uh, access, that's great. But a whole bunch of us weren't doing that. We need to work. We need to work to live. Uh, but uh, people don't want to be in proximity with one another. So that leaves a whole lot of people isolated and adrift. In many professions where people can work remotely, the firms have been very skeptical of the model. Over the last several months, we've been forced to find ways uh, to make it work. Does the model change? Is there more flexibility? Is there a different balance of remote versus in office? Definitely, yes. And the question is how much? Is it 30 or 50% more remote working? Uh, I think it's definitely more than 10 for sure. And, you know, some examples of uh, some things that have proven that out uh, was a recent conversation that I was part of with someone who was from Fidelity. And they had it rolled out over the last year a remote working platform that allowed them in one day to take 4,000 workers to a remote uh, experience. And when I asked about the efficiency of that platform, how are they measuring the performance of those workers? And what did they see in terms of disruption? They said, you know, beyond the normal uh, selling platforms that financial services had, um, you know, they only saw disruption during uh, uh, what was it, February break because the kids were home and then towards the beginning of this pandemic. But they felt they didn't lose a lot of efficiency. So the question is, if that's the case, why go back to the expense, uh, the inefficiency of commuting and, um, you know, having to get ready to work in a common space. How are you balancing that with your view that we are coming back to the office? Yeah, I I mean, I think we're social animals and we crave uh, interaction. Um, You know, one of the things I've been doing during this pandemic is re-listening to a bunch of leadership stories. And uh, I just got to the Steve Jobs uh, book portion where he's forcing Pixar to build a studio all in one building around a common workspace. He was trying to limit the number of bathrooms because he said, you know, we got to have people bang into one another to be creative and interactive. The question is, how much banging into one another do we need to do? Or can we bang into one another virtually? And I think that remains to be seen. Um, You know, one thought I have is that, uh, you know, we have an outdoor guard up, indoor guard down mentality. So I've been thinking about this a little bit is that, you know, as we walk around, People don't necessarily want to get too close to one another. They want to be outside, but they generally want some distance. But when they go inside their home, when they go inside their tower, they're going to want another level of insulation. They're going to want to know that there's a level of screening that's taking place that lets them relax their guard. So that that's a thought of maybe how we adapt to living urbanly, living densely. You're not just thinking about it in theoretical terms. Uh, Accordia is heading up one of the largest projects in the Northeast, almost 6 million square feet in Boston's Bayside on a 20-acre parcel uh, that you've leased from the University of Massachusetts Building Authority. First, tell us a little bit about the project and its nascence. 
Yeah, um, really exciting. I mean, uh, we've been able with our partners at Aries to acquire uh, several sites. We have uh, one one site that's vacant and one that Santander has its uh, headquarters on and will remain on for some time. But uh, we have the great luxury of being on the red line called the Brain Train, two stops uh, from downtown and four from Kendall Square and Harvard. And uh, we're on the water, so we're uh, one of the few waterfront parcels. We're next to an urban beach. I mean, effectively, we're a place where we want people to come for all the natural attributes and the connectivity of transit and access by vehicle and by um, non-vehicular means. And uh, we think people are going to want to go there. We don't want to think that this pandemic is going to prevent people from uh, that interaction that's unique and special about the Bayside site. The other thing is we're next to a public research institution and um, can't underestimate how important it is to begin to think about how companies will need to build uh, the relationships with institutions to meet their needs, meaning the company needs, uh, to fill the skills gap, uh, which exists in a large, about 150,000 person skills gap in Massachusetts. To, uh, to build the workforce of the future. So we feel all that's gonna happen on the uh, Columbia Point Peninsula and uh, you know, at an area that's about half the size of the seaport of Boston. This is a project that you've been thinking about for a while. Uh, I believe it was first announced in 2019. Uh, there was uh, an announcement with regard to some of the more specific uh, features of the plan earlier in March. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you're thinking about the project as being informed by what you're seeing happening right now. Right. Well, we had a bit of a luxury in that this has always been envisioned as a 10-year project. Uh, wasn't a, something that had to happen tomorrow. We did, we're not a building that's half up. Um, the pandemic has certainly slowed down some of our entitlement process because it suspended public meeting laws. And, you know, we're a society that wants to be engaged in big thinking and be part of that thought process. Um, but that beyond that, we're at a great place to sort of take um, this pandemic as a laboratory and try to imagine buildings differently. Um, for one, we have multiple ways to access the site. Will you come by the water? Will you come by the train? Will you come on a bike? Will you walk? Will you take your car? Will your car be autonomous or will it be geo-fenced Ubered? Or, you know, maybe it'll be Uber Elevate because over, you know, the 100-year life of the project, I think uh, a lot of things are going to change. I also see, and we've all seen, a fair amount of adaptability by society in terms of um, law. You know, I mean, you know, whether it's public boards and, uh, you know, public board meetings being allowed virtually or whether it starts to affect how we think about accelerating some of the delays we've had in adapting change. And I think we're going to adapt faster post-pandemic than we did before. I want to ask you a little bit more about the public transportation piece and how people will actually get to the site. I know in New York, this has been a consideration for us. There's such a heavy reliance on the subway to get around right. for almost everyone. Um, and we experience such a high degree of congestion in the subway system that when we're thinking about business resumption plans, how people get to work as much yeah. of that as it is sort of the elevators and the lobbies and the front doors. Um, I, I think it's critical. I mean, and I think uh, obviously people are going to come back to, to dense mass transit slower or with some reticence and we're going to do it 
much in the way we're kind of having distancing now. Uh, but I think we're going to have to figure out how to, um, not unlike Hong Kong did post SARS, begin to get very comfortable with PPE and personal protective equipment is going to be part of our lives, I believe, in, in those more dense settings where we don't know our, uh, our, our subset of persons that we're with. So same thing with mass transit. Sorry. So transit is one, you know, ultimately about getting us there when you're thinking about placemaking in a project of this scale. Before we even go into the building, thoughts on the urban streetscape? Um, and yeah. how, you know, because the, 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 the project does involve so many different features. Uh, what are you thinking about in terms of how you design the layout of buildings, sidewalks, streets, public parks? No, great, great questions. I think clearly um, a lot more space is going to be necessary. And um, in a good way, uh, we had already started thinking about how to be less dense and less vehicular focused. So, uh, as we, not less dense in terms of buildings, but less dense in terms of how we treat our public spaces. So the people have room between them. How do we make the sidewalks wider? How do we have multimodal spaces? And Boston is one of those cities that move pretty quickly towards being very bike friendly and pedestrian friendly and mass transit oriented. So there's been a real push for a while to move away from building cities around roads, but instead think about building cities around how people come to a place. And so I think clearly people are going to want that space. You know, you ask about activating the spaces, you know, with the sidewalk cafes, are you really going to want somebody brushing by you as you're having your omelet on Sunday morning? Um, it's funny, I just posted something they were doing somewhere in Europe where there were individual greenhouses for two diners. Uh, to be uh, on a sidewalk being served by a, a waitress or waiter wearing PPE. So, um, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll probably go through some stages of what those public spaces are like, but the initial ones will have a lot to do with having room to move around. What about the buildings themselves? How are you thinking about, you know, entry and egress, uh, as well as the layouts of the spaces? Certainly a consideration in a market like New York is that over the course of this last cycle, whether it's residential or office, uh, you know, the degree of density, the focus on common spaces where people can congregate has really been where we've invested a lot of our energy and resources, but maybe that changes. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think we're entering a period of no touch CRE. I mean, so basically, you know, you saw it when you were entering WeWork where you didn't really have to talk to the intake person. You showed your badge to the screen and then you were able to enter the building. But now that'll be the same for entry. It'll be for vertical conveyance and to some degree, you know, elevator technology had moved in that direction anyway. Um, it's going to have to do with communication systems. You know, how do, how do we talk to one another? Is it through a screen? Uh, will there be retinal scanning or optic, optical imaging that will let us access spaces securely? And I think we'll see more of that. The actual buildings, I think there'll be a premium on the uh, air handling systems and filtration in a way there hasn't been. Uh, interesting article by uh, John Maycumber and a uh, gentleman from the School of Public Health that just came out uh, from Harvard Business School about that, uh, just kind of thinking more deeply about what's going to be the character. And then are buildings going to be your own personal bunker? I mean, if you're a high-end condo or a, 
you know, Fortune 500 office building, are you going to want a lower level of the building to have some long-term sheltering in place capacity? Um, and then you're going to want autonomy. You know, are you going to be able to be self-sufficient in technology for energy, for access, you know, for a, maybe a, an extended period of time? So I, I think this goes beyond COVID and it really goes to people's emotional response to these kinds of moments where they're going to want to insulate themselves, not just from airborne diseases, but from terrorism, uh, from natural disasters, you know. And so we'll see an emphasis on buildings being more self-sufficient, in my opinion. Uh, you've said that um, you don't want uh, Bayside to be just one type of building and one type of space or one type of person. Um, tell us a little bit about how your thinking on inclusive communities is informing your design. No, that's that. Thank you for the question. And, um, you know, it, it's an ex incredibly difficult question right now with communities of color and low moderate income communities being some of the most affected communities from this. But Dorchester is, in fact, Boston's most diverse community. And uh, as such, you know, we're very much in tune with the idea that this project is supposed to leverage uh, benefits for all. And by that, I don't mean the ability to come just eat something, but rather get a job, to be trained, to go to work. And so, uh, you know, we see our location, you know, beyond the natural attributes on the on a urban public beach and, and the, on a transit line, also being a kind of a meeting point where uh, you know, people can come together. And fortunately, we have a fair amount of space because uh, being on the water and uh, being adjacent to some uh, state-held um, open space, you know, there'll be places where people can come together and not have to pay to use nature. You know, nature's free. And the beauty of this place is, uh, you, you know, you'll come here and it won't cost you anything to enjoy uh, a place. Not unlike the High Line. I mean, anyone can walk on it. If you have the money, you can have a drink on it or uh, maybe go down below and have a meal. But uh, we're very conscious that we've got to create an equitable access to uh, the beauty that we can create by making this place. Closing thoughts. Uh, uh, where do you think we'll be in a year's time? A year. Um, you know, had you asked me a month ago, I might have told you a different answer. I, I think I'm pretty clear that we're still in this a year from now. Um, I think we will get on with it, meaning uh, a lot of things that seem challenging um, are now becoming easier. You know, I, I'm a commissioner for the Civic Design Commission. We had our first public meeting on some projects, so we're starting to begin, um, you know, resuming processes that pretty much had been arrested a month ago. I think a year from now, those meetings will be happening with a great deal of frequency. Um, I, I think we're all gonna get a lot much more, much more comfortable with this uh, sort of personally protected self. Uh, you know, I think we'll have to get over some fear um, about how we interact with one another. I think, um, you know, basically this is gonna be a trust issue. You know, we're going to want to verify who we're with and that they're safe. And, you know, that's going to take some grappling with personal rights. And, uh, how you know, will you be screened going in a business building because that building is exposing many people to whatever an individual brings in? I also think it will heighten our sensitivity to what else comes to the building. Will we be screening cars more carefully or deliveries, you know, 
and I think um, I think we'll keep moving forward. I think our technology and innovation that we spoke about at the top of the hour will let us innovate our way to uh, a wonderful, dense urban environment that we all want to live in. That was Kirk Sykes, Managing Director at Accordia Partners and former Chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Thanks for joining me on The Urban Lab. Thanks for listening to The Urban Lab. For more information about the program and our host, please visit samchandon.com slash urbanlab.